Egyptian Experience Episode 14, Lessons from Ancient Rome, recorded July 11th, 2021. So how do I begin to explain my fascination with ancient Rome? A political entity that, in a way, lasted for almost 2,000 years. A republic who proved the prototype of the political system employed by the United States today. An empire that brought civilization that stretched from the frontier of Britain across Spain, France, and parts of Germany to the entire coastal region of the Mediterranean and into the western regions of the Middle East, such as Jerusalem. Roads, trade, plumbing, education, which took inspiration from the earlier Greeks, aqueducts that distributed water throughout the cities, Greek-inspired architecture, a generally well-protected populace within the empire from outside raids, a multitude of powerful and fascinating leaders like Julius and Augustus Caesar, Nero, Caligula, Trajan, Hadrian, Commodus, Marcus Aurelius, the list goes on and on, and that's just who became Caesar. The Romans had their fair share of philosophers as well, like Seneca, Cicero, Plutarch, and Atticus. The Roman generals who did not end up becoming Caesar, or were before the title became the moniker for the leader of Rome, they also made their mark upon history. Innovations from Gaius Marius to expand the Roman army from just noble families to anyone who was capable. Scipio Africanus for his campaign against Carthage, who was one of Rome's earliest contenders for control of the Mediterranean. Mark Antony, often considered to be the right-hand man to Julius Caesar, to Pompey Magnus and Marcus Crassus, who along with Julius Caesar formed the first Roman triumvirate. The Romans had a knack of looking at the ideas of other nations, especially the Greeks, and improving upon them. Everything from philosophy to politics to military tactics, the expanded network of roads and architecture, the Romans took a concept and improved upon it. That ability to take an idea and expand upon it was a huge contributing factor to the dominance of Rome. Under the Republic, but especially during the days they switched to being an empire, there was what was known as Pax Romana. This translates to Roman peace. During that time, if you were a Roman citizen, you lived a good life. And while the Romans didn't have the first of this, 
they're probably one of the most prominent ones that come to mind. A professional army. The Roman legions were not to be trifled with. The incentivization of joining the Roman army was very appealing, especially at its height. A few years of military service and training at government expense, getting to travel and see the world, acquire wealth, and at the end of your service, you would have been rewarded with a piece of land to call your own. The improvement of tactics. So before there was the Greek phalanx, which used circular bronze shields that covered soldiers from thigh to neck, and the group would lock together with spears forward. The Romans took this concept and improved upon it with a formation that they would call testudo. Like the Greek phalanx that locked shields, the Romans would also lock shields, but those at the front would lock their taller rectangular shields together, and those in the second line and on back would raise their shields up high, forming a roof, offering greater protection, especially from enemy archers. The Greek practice of democracy was improved upon by the Romans, by having elected officials, such as senators and consuls, who were tasked with voting on issues in the interests of their constituents, as opposed to the easily swayable and fickle mob being led by emotion to vote on matters that would end up with chaos and disorder in the streets. But, I'm getting ahead of myself. I could ramble on about various aspects of Rome, but, as this show dictates, there needs to be some order. Some good Roman order to this show. Everything I've just been rambling about is just information that I know offhand. I haven't even begun to talk about what I've read and researched in prep in preparation for this. And while, yes, this is a what I've been calling a kind of warrior culture series, like with looking back at the Vikings and the Greeks, the Romans took efficiency to more than just military matters. The Roman Republic and Empire... Both eras have a lot to offer the modern man, both in terms of what he can adopt in his own life and knowledge of history to appreciate the systems that were inspired by the Romans that our own country has improved upon. We owe a lot to the Greeks, don't get me wrong. And I may be a little biased in my opinion here, but I feel that we owe the same if not more, to the Romans. So now, let's truly begin with the founding and see where in the history of Roman civilization we owe thanks and what we can learn and apply to today, both the good and the bad. So possible new evidence suggests that the village of Rome may have been founded even earlier than originally thought by a Latin tribe on top of the Palatine Hill in the 10th century BC. This has yet to be confirmed, but according to legend, what we've previously thought of 
is that Rome was founded by Romulus and Remus in 753 BC on the ford of the river Tiber. After Romulus became king, Rome would have six more kings. The last Roman king, Tarquin the Proud, would be overthrown by Lucius Junius Brutus in 509 BC. Brutus would help establish a system of magistrates and representative assemblies who would be elected on an annual basis. Now, enter the era of the Roman Republic. The age of the Roman kings was relatively short, if you couldn't figure that out. The era of the Republic would last just a little longer than 500 years. Here is where we'll see what you might think of as the early prototype of our American Republic. You have the Senate, which was, in theory, to be a consultative body that governed but did not legislate. It was composed of a lot of men from the patrician or aristocratic class. If you were trying to work your way up the senatorial ladder, you would have obviously started at the bottom. That position was known as a quaestor. A quaestor was someone who took care of financial affairs. They would often be assigned to a military general or supervise the treasury or some sort of financial administrative role. Working your way uh, up the ladder, the next one is actually a position for the plebeian class in the Senate. This was known as a tribune. This position was formed because of a conflict that was known as the Struggle of the Orders. It was a conflict that nearly ended the early republic. It was created, this position, the, the, uh, the tribune, was created as a compromise from that conflict so that the Roman peasants could have a presence in the government. The tribune had a power that was only shared by the highest office in the Senate, and that was the power of veto, the ability to strike down a proposal by the Senate. Only about three to five tribunes were usually in the Roman Senate at one time. Working your way up from a quaestor, you would have been promoted to an aedile. Aediles were in charge of public buildings like restaurants, taverns, and brothels. They also staged the Roman games. The gladiators of the, com- of the Colosseum should instantly come to mind. That arena where men fought to the death for the amusement of the crowd. An Aedile was in charge of supervising all of that, which might sound like a partying kind of job, but they actually had to deal with a lot of the low lives. Now, a position sort of adjacent to the Edal that would spring up in the second half of the Republic is the Praetor. Now, you have to remember that they didn't have all of these positions thought out from the get-go. It took a long time of trial and error and seeing problems spring up and trying to find a solution to the problems while still maintaining the system of government that had been established as opposed to the tyranny of a king. Anyway, the praetors 
they acted kind of like judges. The Roman legal system was very similar to the American legal system. Like judges, the praetor would listen to the cases made by defendants and prosecutors and would often pass judgment on those found guilty. One of the most notable praetors was a, a man named Cato the Younger. He was uh, a political opponent of Caesar in the Senate. Cato would exercise his political power that, in a way, might sound familiar. He would prevent laws from passing by just speaking without end until the, se until the session of the Senate was over for the day. Today we would call that a filibuster. Uh, the position that the Roman, that the everyday Roman politician would be gunning for would be the consul. This would be the Roman equivalent of the President of the United States. Roman consuls were re-elected every year, as opposed to their modern U.S. counterparts being elected every four. Also, unlike U.S. presidents, two consuls were elected each year, and each would have the power to veto the other. What the consuls typically did was spend the first few months sorting out legislative matters, like new laws, protocols, treaties, etc., etc., etc. And then they would spend the rest of their term, take the army, go out, try to conquer a rival, come back with plunder. There's actually one more position worth noting in the Roman Senate. And that would be the censor. Like the consul, two censors would be elected to the Senate. And they would usually be much older and more experienced politicians who had basically been around for a while. Like they, they kind of knew what was going on. And... I can see where the position of the censor could be abused, but I really like the general idea of what the censor was in charge of in the house, what the censor was supposed to do in, in, uh, in theory, in, in the concept of it. So the, the censor had two jobs, and I'm more referring the second job as the interesting one. So the first job of the censor was to keep a head count of Roman citizens, similar to how we have the census here in modern times. But the second job, the interesting one that I, I think, the second job of the censor was, I don't know, I think it could be a useful, it could in some way be useful again. What it was, was to make sure that the members of the Senate were maintaining proper morals at least while the Senate was in session. Now, one rather extreme example of a censor exercising this would be from Cato the Elder, who, in 184 BC, he, he threw out a senator for kissing his wife in front of his daughter. Now, that's... a uh, pretty extreme case it's uh that's a little little too stringent a little a little uh too just yeah just extreme 
But the general idea of what a censor is supposed to do is make sure that all of the members of the Senate are not becoming degenerate and lascivious. Which leads me to my main point of tying this back to what we can learn from the Romans. The Romans recognized the need for a style of government that was more representative of its people than a king. With some way to keep the members of the governing body or party in check and producing as minimal corruption as possible. Because history's shown us that, you know, uh, no corruption seems to be impossible. The Roman Republic lasted for just a little over 500 years. That's half. That's over half a millennium. Which, despite its ups and downs, a strong case could be made that it was the most stable time of Roman of Roman society. Why did the Republic last as long as it did? I think the Roman Republic lasted for so long because of the shared morals and virtues of the society. The Roman word for virtue was virtus. The virtues exhibited by the ancient Romans were to be practiced in both public and private life. The public virtues were that of honesty, acting in good faith, selflessness, and a sense of justice. The personal and private virtues of Romans were to be resolute, dutiful, wholesome and pure, and to practice self-control. When the majority of the populace shares these virtues and passes them down from generation to generation, the society thrives. It can be it becomes strong, obviously, as the Romans did for so long. It becomes strong. It, it's it it's prosperous. When you look at a map of the Roman Republic, not the Empire, but the Republic at its territorial height, it actually was not that much smaller than when it became an empire. During its imperial years, the empire filled the gaps. And they did push out the edges. Yeah, I mean, I'm not denying the fact that the empire did increase in size. But the overall size, relatively speaking, in comparison to its republic phase, it didn't increase that much. Now, a quick note. This episode I'm doing a kind of broad strokes, cliff notes version of some of the history of Rome. I'm going to look at some notable characters in the coming episodes, but I just wanted to make that point here real quick. So, anyway, bring this back to the virtues of Rome. It's a critical moment for the long-term survival of a republic when the prominent rise of individuals like Julius Caesar, Crassus, Pompey, and Mark Antony come into the picture. These men wielded not only a lot of political and military influence, but they became popular among the Roman people, especially Caesar, which 
If you have even a minimal understanding of Roman history, you'll have heard of him. Julius Caesar gave away a lot of his spoils of war to both his army and to the people of Rome. He was putting on a show of selflessness, one of those virtues to the Roman people. What he was doing, though, was very calculated. He gained so much popularity with the Roman people through military victories and giving away wealth that they would elect him dictator for life. He had acquired so much influence in both the military, the general public, and even a large portion of the Senate. Now, his reign, it didn't last all that long. I think it lasted, I think, a year tops, and he was promptly assassinated. There's a, there's a famous Shakespeare play about that, where Brutus, who I, who I believe is descended from the Brutus that uh, took out Tarquin the Proud during the Age of Kings, but after Caesar was assassinated, there was a civil war between Mark Antony and Cleopatra versus Augustus Caesar, who was Julius's nephew. And Augustus Caesar would become the first true emperor of Rome after winning that conflict, thus effectively ending the era of the Republic. Now, why does that matter? Because it, the, the, the society prospered for a while. It, it didn't, didn't fall down after Augustus Caesar took power. As a matter of fact, you know, there were a lot of good years as, as the empire. The Roman virtues didn't disappear overnight. But now that it was the era of empire, the era of the Caesars, the slow but inevitable collapse of Rome was underway. And honestly, it's amazing that the empire lasted for as long as it did. The emperor effectively reduced the role of the Senate to be just an extension of the emperor's own authority rather than have any ability to question the decisions of the emperor. Now that Roman society was in the hands of dictatorship, the ability to practice several of those Roman virtues was in itself to act against the emperor. Virtues like selflessness and self-control were thrown out by emperors like Nero, who almost spent Rome into collapse, into financial collapse, trying to build so many of his art monuments, or... <laughs> Germanicus, who by the time he was Caesar, the, the empire was on such a decline. Uh, I mean, there's you could make the, the case that he was making a point to the Senate, but he appointed his own horse to the Roman Senate. Or Caligula, who committed so many depraved sexual acts with his own family. That depravity would spread down to the citizenry. Again, 
it's hard to practice good Roman virtues when the mere act of practicing them makes you a threat to those in positions of political authority. Now, that's not to say that there weren't some good Roman emperors who, during their reign, the empire was prosperous. But those reigns, I would say, would be the equivalent of when a person is drowning and their head is going up and down out of the water, in and out. The moments where the person's head would come out of the water to try to catch as much breath to try to stop from drowning, to me, when the head comes out of the water, that would be the the during the rule of emperors like Trajan, Hadrian, and Marcus Aurelius, just off the top of my head. When the head would come down back into the water, that'd be your Caligulas and your Neros. Emperors like Marcus Aurelius, they have a more favorable spot during the empire days of Roman history. Because as I'll get to in a later episode... Marcus Aurelius is hes one of the most notable practitioners of Stoicism, which is a practice that I think can be applied still to this day. It's a good way to try to help overcome the hardships of life, Stoicism, but I'm digressing. So we're going to tie the importance of all this that's happened, this this brief broad stroke of Rome to today's society, to the United States. So one of the big markers of the decline of Roman society was the increased prevalence of, let's just call it moral decadence and sexual depravity. A society in which the majority of its citizenry cannot control its impulses and just indulge on their desires at a whim is not going to be able to defend itself from not only internal collapse, but also external threat from foreign adversaries. Towards the end of Rome, when the various tribes from the Anglo-Saxons pushed the Roman legions out of Britain, or when the Visigoths actually successfully attacked the capital, and when the empire was split into two halves, western and eastern, they, they also lost the territory of Spain. All this factored together with the internal economic, political, and cultural issues. It, the empire... It, it caused what we think of as the Roman Empire to collapse. The eastern half of the empire would still thrive for another 1,000 years as the Byzantine Empire. Now, the Byzantines still considered themselves Romans and the continuation of the same empire. But today, the United States, possibly similarly to Rome, is in a particularly precarious position culturally politically economically there's a cultural civil war going on in this country 
that is being taken advantage of by politicians on the far left side of the aisle and possibly even by members of the old establishment on the right side of the aisle, i.e. your Mitch McConnells and Mitt Romney types. The left side, the extreme left side, wants to completely undo old institutions that while, yes, were not perfect when they were put into place, they can be fixed. Without those old institutions, which have the capacity for good, I fear for the future of the country. The members of the establishment right, I think, don't actually care about fixing the institutions and just want to keep their careers slash positions of authority instead of actually serving the public and ensuring the prosperity of the country. And now, here's where I'm going to leave you. I'm going to end part one of this look back at ancient Rome and its possible parallels with today with a quote from Cicero who said this almost as a plea to the Roman people and I think it could be applied today it goes like this quote Cling fast to virtues, I beg you, men of Rome. It is a heritage that your ancestors bequeathed to you. All else is false and doubtful, ephemeral and changeful. Only virtues stand firmly fixed. Its roots run deep. It can never be shaken by any violence. Never move from its place. Thanks for listening.